welcome once again to another episode of the Random Access Podcast, brought to you by RAPodcast.net. This is episode 465, recorded live on Saturday, June 11th, 2016. And here are your hosts, the man who's been on the podcast all the time, Angelo. Hi. The woman who's been heard on this podcast a lot, Kate. Hi. The man who's been on one episode, Jake. Hello. And our guest this week, who's been on the podcast for the first time, Doug. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on here. So, yes, so Jake's now number two times on here. Kate's, I don't even know how many times I've heard her on the podcast. I think it's the third time on purpose. As you can tell, though, the one man who is missing from the podcast today is Dave. He is currently, as we speak, doing a wedding rehearsal for the same wedding that we've talked about, I don't know how many times on this podcast already. So I dragged in a bunch of people. And then Doug randomly emails me going, hey, I want to be on your show. So I said, sure. That is true. To be fair, I'm sitting like two feet away from him, so it's not real hard to drag me around here. You'd have to come. True. So, Doug, how did you um, hear about us? Well, we have uh, apparently have a mutual friend. Um, I um, have been doing game design stuff for several years now and um, have been going to this conference called Unpub, which happened, has been going on for years now. And I've gone to a couple of them and always ended up sitting next to the same two gentlemen in their racing game. Um, uh, and uh, Aaron is the one who... Uh, told me, hey, I should uh, talk to you guys about um, being on the show. So, um, so that's that's why I uh, that's how we got in touch. Now, do you want to describe Unpub for people who don't know? Sure, it's a it's an interesting thing. It's the idea is to get people who have unpublished games, which is where the name of the the conference comes from, uh, and we're and we're talking board games here, card games, you know, not video games. And we, the biggest thing that you really need to do when you're working on a board game is to get people to come and test it and play it for you. And you know, usually we start by, you know, dragging our friends into that kind of environment. But eventually it's sometimes helpful to get people who you've never met before and have no experience with your game before to come out and play the game with you. And that was the whole idea behind Unpub. So a bunch of designers would go to some location and the designers would pay for to go to the to the event and then anyone else who wanted to would just show up and could play whatever games they'd sat down at a table and play and the designer would show them you know hey this is my game and here's how we play and and you'd go through the process of playtesting your game that way um, and it started out as a real small thing in the hinterlands in delaware somewhere and the last couple of years they've actually held it in a couple of rooms in the Baltimore Convention Center. So it's it's kind of grown up and become a really neat uh, really neat activity. So I think it's what the fifth year was this year? That might be right. I, I actually missed this year. I seem to be going every other year. So I was there two years ago. Um, and yeah, that might be about right. So what was the uh, the first game you brought to Unpub? I brought uh, a game called UFO Racing League, which is a three dimensional racing game. Um, so you, you've got your UFO slot on these uh, plastic stands in, that, in different elevations and move around the board and you can run into other people and it's a little bit of a combination of a race and a smash up derby. And it's very, it's very science-y. There's, um, your, your, your ship maintains momentum as it moves. So you have to, if you have one, if you want to turn around, you actually have to, you know, kind of fire your thrusters in the opposite direction until you can get to zero and then start moving in the other direction. And it, it, it's worked out pretty well. Um, uh, but, but haven't, I haven't had, uh, obviously at, at some point you have to get somebody to help you publish the game unless you're going to try and do it yourself. So I haven't had anyone do that yet, but that was the first one I brought there, and I've brought that a couple years now. So the the game that you wanted to talk about today is not actually your first game? Well, so the game I wanted to talk about today, so I've, I've got a game that's on Kickstarter uh, right this second, and it is called Championship Formula Racing. And it's a game, actually, that is it's funny you know i start i started designing board you know games because i thought that was fun i've been playing board games forever and ufo racing was really kind of the first design of mine that i put together and was working on but then i got a call uh, a call from a, a game publisher a couple years ago and he said i really want to do a new version of speed circuit which is an old formula and racing game that was originally done by 
um, uh, that Avalon Hill bought from SPI um, years ago and has been published a couple times, but hasn't really been published since the 70s, maybe. But it's got a bit of a you know kind of underground following to it that people still play it and. Um, most of us who've been playing it for that long, my dad taught me how to play this when I was a kid, and uh, most of us who've been playing it for that long have been modifying the rules like crazy in varying degrees. And so um, uh, Jim Dietz at Jolly Roger Games apparently really liked this game too and wanted to republish it and found my rule set. I've been running the game as a at um, a a big convention, a big board game convention, um, to the WBC convention for a while. And he found my rule set online and said, Hey, I think this is the rule set I want to do. So, um, I want to publish this and we're going to, you know, the, the thing with board games is that, uh, rules and mechanics are not copyrightable or trademarkable. And so, you know, you, you get a lot of variations and one-offs and then you'll have people who will just basically say, Hey, I'm, going to do a complete re-implementation of this game. So, I mean, the rule book's completely rewritten and there's a lot of new parts and components to it, but in a way it's it's a, a revision of an old game. So it, it, it was kind of ironic that I decided to get into game design and have been working on some designs for years and it turns out the thing that hopefully will get published first is something that I didn't even realize I've been working on for 15, 20 years. Okay, so that clarifies something. So I was looking at your Kickstarter and I'm like, Jolly Roger Games, it looks like it's based out of California and you're in D.C. Yeah, and you know, I've never met Jim. Uh, we've talked on the phone a number of times, but you know, it's the the, the modern era, so you don't really... You know, you know, you've got we have an Internet and uh, I've had uh, rule sets and track maps on the Internet for years for the for speed circuit. And you know, it, it got to the point where I my rule set was uh, different enough than the way the game started that he decided, hey, this would be good. I want to publish this and just it actually reached out to me, which is not normally how that happens. But but it was it was I think just the. You know, when you when you run, I've been running this tournament for years, and I've been running online tournaments, and you know, you get a a group of people who know what you're that you're doing this thing, and and you end up kind of creating this audience, and so uh, he he, it was pretty easy for him to find me at that point. So um, yeah. Now I know Jake, you pointed this out that it <laughs> the cards actually looked a lot like um that old uh, French card game, right? Yeah, Milbourne. That's funny. I yeah, I, I used to play Moborn too, actually. Um, um, well, you know, the so the original cards that I, I made were uh, very um, uh, prototypey <laughs> and uh, didn't look very good from a graphic design layout. That's not, you know, I, I feel like I can do just enough to get by, but they brought in a professional to actually clean things up. And I, I, I suspect that was unintentional. I suspect that was probably just you know, your your Formula One racing is very European in origin, and and still today, most of its fan, a lot of its fan base, and it's very kind of. I think I think maybe that era is just kind of what gets invoked, whether you're running around in a French countryside or you're driving race cars. So you're saying that people have actually are still doing this game online? Is that what you said? Yeah, we. Uh, you know, it it it's it works out relatively well as a play, a play by mail, and obviously, you know, we do play by email these days. Um, so we, I run tournaments that way. There's a number of people who do, and there's a number of um, smaller, medium-sized board game conventions, and even some larger ones where people will break out, you know, the old speed circuit or newer versions like Championship Formula Racing, and play them as tournaments or play them as one-offs. So even though the game itself hasn't been published since the 70s, it's uh, it's kept a, a decent audience around. Um, I don't know of any places where people play it um, live on the internet, you know, kind of real time. Um, the game can be kind of long if you're doing, if you've got a good number of people, it can be about an hour per lap if you've got like 10 or 12 people on the track. So that that's a big block of time to try and carve out all at once for, for a live online play. Uh, and, and I don't know if the tools are there quite yet. You know, for the for the play-by-mail, I've got a spreadsheet, actually, that has everything I need on it that somebody helped me build. So, And that's pretty easy to, to then send around every time you do a turn update. But it, it works relatively well for that. Now, do you kind of want to walk through the uh, the mechanics of this game? Because I realize, you know, it's a it's a racing game, so I have the feeling that you're, you know, your goal is to win. But uh, how? Yeah, no. It, um, so it, it's on a lot. There's a lot of racing games out on the market. A lot of racing board games. Um, you know, some of them are more popular. Formula Day is probably the one that's most maybe most well known in the hobby space. But 
your your basic the 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 tracks in uh, championship formula racing are have grids on them, so there's spaces, dis- distinct you know uh, spaces that you move on. And every turn, your car is going a particular speed, anywhere from 20 miles an hour to maybe 220 miles an hour. And for every 20 miles an hour your car speed is, you will move one space forward on the track. So on my turn, if my car is going 120, I'll move six spaces. And then each car at the beginning of the game, you'll set up your car, and you have different choices for these six different attributes that each car has. And uh, Acceleration, deceleration, and top speed are three of the main ones you use throughout the race. And they kind of the way they sound help define for you how you can change your speeds and what speed you can go every turn. So if I'm going 100 this turn and I have a 40 acceleration, I can go 100 or 120 or 140, but going 160 would require me to um, do what's called a test, which is a die roll. You can roll dice to try and cheat on almost any of the statistics in the in the game, but there's a chance that I could break my car. So there you're, there's different stats that let you change your speeds in different directions and the the main component of each track that really helps define how you want to run around the track is the corners and every corner will have uh, different lanes and the lanes will have speeds on them and that's the safe speed that you can negotiate that corner at so if the speed through this one lane in this one corner is 60 if i go 60 then that's fine and if i go faster than 60 then I scrub some wear off my tires. So there's a point pool, which is another attribute you buy to me in the game called wear. And it's just a pile of chips. And every time you go 20 miles an hour over a corner, you throw one of those chips away. Or if you go 40 miles an hour over a corner, you throw two of them away. And so the big, that's one of the, that's one of the huge, the, the big strategic components of the game is I've got this stack of wear. Everyone's got a stack of wear in front of them. And when do I use it? Do I use it early in the race to try and, you know, get up the lead and make people try and pass me later? Do I try and use it evenly around the track? Do I try and wait and let everybody else run out of wear? And then I pass them when they don't have anything they can do in the corners, but go the regular speeds. You know, and maybe there's different corners that I think I want to try and spend wear in, and other corners I don't, depending on how I think the track lays out. And that's really the so the corners and how you spend your wear and how you set up your car to try and go into corners or out of corners faster or slower is is kind of the broad strategic. And I th- I think that's where the game really shines is it's it's a little bit chess like. You want to think a couple turns ahead at least, and and it's I think a more strategic game because there's not a lot of randomness. Um, I'm not rolling dice to see how many spaces I move. Uh, I'm very, it's very determined. I'm going to go the speed that I'm, I've, you know, the number of spaces I've plotted because I've gone a particular speed this turn. So, so you can do a lot of planning ahead and, and try and build strategies. And, and unfortunately, then what happens is other people get in your way and your strategies go away. But, but it, it, it can be very strategic, and I think that's kind of the strength of it. So... How long you said your your dad was playing this game with you, right? So when did you decide to start making your own rules for it? So I, I yeah, he, he we did. We played it when I was in uh, I don't know high school some, and and then I you know, went away to college and didn't play it for years. And and one one many years after after college, I ended up at a, a board game convention, first board game convention I ever went to, and I was just kind of wandering around seeing what they got. Some friends of mine convinced me to come up and 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 do it. And I happened upon this room, and this was a convention that used to be run by Avalon Hill back when they were a, a company. And I wandered into this room, and there were a bunch of guys playing Speed Circuit in this room. And they had gone through the trouble of blowing up the track maps to 132nd scale. So they had they had these huge, you know, like three-inch long, really nice Formula One collector models that they were using as their cars. And they had, you know, four or five conference tables squished together to put this track down on and were running around. And, you know, they had like 12, 14 cars on track at the same time. And, you know, and I when I grew up, there were, you know, you get these little little pieces and, and there's three of us playing on a track and we do one lap. And these guys were running 14 cars around for three laps. And it was just I was just like, wow, I know that game. That game was fun. And so I started going to the tournament every year and playing. And then the guy who used to run that tournament after a couple of years after I'd been there decided he didn't want to do it anymore. He didn't want to come to the convention anymore. And he left. And in the meantime, I had started building some tracks at more matchbox scale because I can get a hold of matchbox cars a lot easier than these huge ones he had. And I've been playing with some of my friends at home. And so when he left, I was like, all right, well, I'll start 
I'll start um, taking over the tournament because that's fine. I have I started to have some tracks and I had some cars and I started doing that. And he had been using some modified rules of his own. And and you know, I, I, it's a game that because it hadn't been published in so long and it was an older game, it, it was ripe for that kind of people wanted to add things to it and dangle more things off of it. And it was pretty easy to do that. And so I just started doing that and just, you know, every year I'd come up with another idea or somebody else who was at the tournament would come up with new ideas and, you know, we'd, we'd use those new ideas next year. And then if they didn't work out, we got rid of them or if I decided to make a change, I'd make a change. And so that was, you know, that was how we started getting, I started building up this rule set, um, you know, taking suggestions from other people and, and coming up with own ideas of my own to try and, you know, make the game better, I guess. How different are the rules that you're playing with now from what they were originally? I, I think, you know, the core is there. I mean, the, you know, the original game you had, you know, the speeds and the speeds made the same, meant the same thing. Um, so I think the, the core of the rules are similar. Um, you know, I think there's some little, you know, innovations that, that I tried to add on, some of which I borrowed from other people or, or saw other people doing, and some of which we came up with on our own to just try and, you know, make the game a little, feel a little bit more modern and feel a bit, um, uh, maybe reflect more modern Formula One cars. I, I think one of the big things that I've really contributed to this is actually the tracks. Each track is almost uh, is, is very different than other tracks and really changes the nature of the game a lot when you play. Um, and I've actually I actually started several years ago deciding I was going to make a track for every single modern Formula One race out there. And I'm I, and so I now have 25 different tracks that I've built, all based on you know my own designs of watching Formula One races and. And looking at data on cornering speeds and and straightaway speeds and and all that and watching races you know in person or not in person but on TV or uh, watching you know lap times and stuff like that and um, and and so I've built a whole library of original tracks that are based on you know the modern Formula One tracks that are out there and, and I think that's probably one of the biggest things that I've contributed to this because the tracks are really you know, depending on what track you're racing on, it can be a very different game and, and it can play out very differently. And, and so I've, that, that's probably one of the biggest things. But there's other things we've added to. Um, there's a driver skill component now that helps you break the roll dice more efficiently for a period of time. That's completely different than the original game. Um, and there's a couple other things that I've really added. There was a pitting rules that we've added that I've added that um, um, didn't exist in the original game. So you know, you you start your game with a smaller pile of wear, and you can decide periodically, oh, you know what, I'm going to go into pits and get another stack. Um, but that takes time, so you have to balance that choice. And then the last big thing I added was um, actually really fun to add. It's it's a system for racing against uh, historical drivers who drive themselves. So I've got these strategy cards and these little cards that represent the driver and, and the, the drivers all have car stats like all the people do. And then they have a series of like decision trees on how they're going to how they're going to make decisions for um, how much wear to spend in, 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 in corners. And that guides them around the track all by themselves. And one of the things that was really important for us when we put this together, because this was actually something that Jim Dietz requested, he was like, I want to play this game with 10 people and I can never get three people in a room together to play it. So I needed to make the system for me. So one of his goals, though, was that these weren't supposed to just be people who got in the way. They were actually supposed to be competitive. So, you know, it, it took some effort on my part, actually, to, you know, to come up with, you know, these are going to be cars that run around the track the same way the people do but have them be competitive. And so I ended up having them cheat in various ways as a way to get around the fact that they didn't have real brains in their heads. But it, was, it is a neat system, and I've run races with just myself and 10 people, or I'm running a race right now that's on the table with uh, my son and four um, historic drivers. And it was cool because I you know, got to go through, and you know, so I have historic drivers based on actual racers who race now or people, old, old drivers, and 
and try and model the the cars and their behavior on on how those drivers really raced or what they were known for, which was it was really neat to do that. It was a neat experience from a game design perspective, and I've I've had fun playing with it. Now, how accurate are some of these uh, tracks that you've designed, or do you kind of just take an idea of a track and modify it, or are you trying to be like one hundred percent exact to what the actual course is like? I, I I start with well, it I, I try and be pretty accurate, but at the end of the day, it is a game, and so you know there's there's compromises that we have to make to make it uh, more to, to because at the end of the day, you want it to be fun and you want the game to be fun. Um, so, but I start with you know, I go through this process where I'll look at a new track and I'll find you can find some really neat data on the web these days about tracks that are being run today. Um, you can find well, the the company that provides brakes for most of the Formula One cars to, after Friday practice of a race weekend, they'll put data out on their website about what the braking speeds were for every single corner on the track. And so from that, I now have a real quick, hey, I know which cor- what the you know how fast cars are going as they enter all these different corners. Um, and then you can also get, they also tell you how fast the car was going before it started braking. So now I know how fast the cars were going on that straightaway. So it gives me a lot of really good, um, uh, pinpoints on, you know, speeds that I want to be able to achieve in the straights and how fast they should be going through the corners. Uh, I have, a uh, effectively have a formula for, you know, you know how long the tracks are. That's public. Well, they always print it on the track is, you know, so many kilometers long or whatever. And I have a formula for how I want that to convert into actual numbers of spaces. Um, so most of my tracks are about 70 spaces long, but some of them are as short as maybe 50, 60 spaces. And one of them is almost a hundred spaces. So there's some variance, but they tend to cluster around that 70 range. Because that you don't want them to be too too long, because then the game takes forever, and so that's a good cluster. And I also know that from a gameplay balance standpoint, I want between I want around six or seven corners, because if you have you know fifteen corners, then it's going to make it hard. You only get so many wear per lap, so it's going to make the game balance a bit funny. And if you only have two corners, then it's no fun. Uh, There's no challenge because you. There's no pressure on your wear pool to, to, to run out of wear. Um, so, so there are some game parameters I'll take into consideration, and then there's some, some track modeling. And I try and model the tracks pretty well, but I also – so I'll, I'll usually start with that. So I'll watch a race, and I'll, I'll make some notes on, oh, well, this is the way this track looks like it races. You know, No one ever can ever pass in this section. We're going to make it narrow. We're going to make the corners tight and hard to get through. And then this trap part, you know, is where people pass. So we'll do different things to the corners to make it easy to pass there or make it so you can get through the corner a couple different ways effectively. And that makes it easier to get through. And then I start testing the track myself. I'll run it myself, you know, several times and try and get a feel for how it's working and how multiple cars will race on it. And, and sometimes it works out pretty well the way I observed it. And sometimes I'll run the track as a, as a game after having observed it and being like, well, you know what? It's just not fun the way to model real life for this track. I mean, the, one of the problems with Formula One these days is sometimes the cars just have a hard time passing each other. And that's just not fun in real life. So we try, I try not to model Formula One too accurately for that reason. But I do do spend a lot of time you know, trying to make the tracks representative and make it feel like, yeah, I could really be racing on this track. And it feels a little bit like I am racing on this track. Were you a fan of uh, watching racing before you started working on this game? Or is that something that developed out of necessity? I, I've, I've become much more of a fan as, I, as I've been working on the game. Um, I, my parents were always huge um, Formula One and racing fans. And I remember watching the Indy 500 on tape delay when I was growing up. And um, uh, But um, Formula One races, um, it was hard to get broadcasts of them until maybe 10, 15 years ago in the United States. Um, and because it's there's not a huge fan base here. Uh, but I did start... Uh, watching Formula One races religiously and keeping up with the news and and various you know commentary on racing. Uh, when I started uh, hosting the tournament at WBC and and you know doing race tracks of my own and uh, so it so I did become more of a fan as I worked on the game. But I, I probably started out as more of a fan of the game um, and you know became a fan of racing and Formula One more 
because of the game than the other way around. All right, so I've got two questions now. Would the Indy 500 be a horrible track to try and do because it's literally just a circle? Yes, for my game. I mean, there's other games that where that makes more sense, although they did run a Formula One race at, at Indy for a couple years. But what they did was they used about half of what you know of as Indy 500, and then they built an infield section that was had corners in it and and was more like a Formula One track. But um, and and maybe one day I'll do a I'll do a track for that one. But but yeah, it, it would be tough. There there's an old Formula One track that I saw Avalon Hill do a track of called Avis, and it was basically a and, and a lot of old Formula One tracks started out as World War II runways that got decommissioned and got turned into racetracks. But this one was really one runway down, and then they turned around and came back and turned around and went down. And I actually raced on that track once in Speed Circuit, and it was literally one of the most boring races I'd ever been done, I'd ever done. Okay, and the second question is, has anybody done a Detroit Street Circuit map? Avalon Hill did do a Detroit Street Circuit map back in the day, and I raced that. And I'll tell you, that was the second worst track I ever ran on because it was – it was so the the way Avalon Hill had modeled it. Now you know, I mean, again, you you make game choices when you model this, and and the way Avalon Hill modeled it, it was very narrow, and there were so many corners so close together that it was just a brutal, brutal track. Um, now you know that said, it you know I I I like I said, I made twenty five different tracks. I did a a track of the modern Singapore track, which probably has a lot in common with that old Detroit track. It's a street track. It's really narrow. It, it's got some corners that are just impossible for more than one car to go through at the same time. And um, and I, I I run I've run that track for. And there are people who hate it when I bring that track out to a convention because they feel the same way I do about Detroit. So, um, but yeah, I, I my next goal actually because I'm caught up with modern tracks. It, you know, admittedly beyond the the new ones that they keep adding to the calendar is to go back through. Formula One historical records and start doing old tracks. So maybe I'll get to Detroit eventually. Well, Detroit was known for, even if you finish, was a victory sort of thing there. I think there was one year that only six cars actually finished the race. I would completely believe it. I, I, I never saw the track in person. I mean, I, they uh, run in person, but um, it, the, the the maps I've seen of it are, are ugly. So is this your day job doing this sort of thing, or do you do something else, and, and this is just a hobby? It's just a hobby. I, game, game design is one of those things that's really hard to make it as a day job. Um, it's just hard to make enough money to do it. And, and even some of the most successful and well-known game designers out there um, – do it maybe half time, but there are there are certainly a few who who make a full time job of it. But it's it's a bit more like writing books in a lot of respects. In that you know most most authors honestly are just people who write because it they love to do it, but they don't make enough money to do it as a full time job. But there's a few who do. So what type of uh, games do you enjoy? I mean, I, I do like strategic, more strategic games, but um, then, you know, I, the, the modern, you know, the, the typical hobby gamer uh, will, you know, typically turn their nose up at things like Monopoly and Risk. But, you know, I've certainly enjoyed those games in my time and, and still play them some some to this day. But I, I, I enjoy games that are, I enjoy a lot of different games and I, and I try and play a lot of different games. Um, I don't know if there's necessarily a particular style I like more than others. Right now, I tend to play a lot of games that my son, my 11 year old son likes to play because he's a, uh, an, uh, an opponent that is, um, always at my house. So it makes it convenient. Now, do you go easy on them or do you just play like you normally play? Um, it, it depends. I've stopped going easy on them because it, it hasn't been necessary, but there were certainly were times when I did because I think there's a certainly a point in time in which you know you're just trying to have fun and beating up people is beating up small children and board games is not really cool but um but I he's gotten to the point now where he doesn't I don't need to go easy on him anymore my big sister would disagree with your statement about uh, crushing people not being fun yeah well, does she still feel that way or is she matured oh she would crush me in any game she could I, I guess I just try and be nicer to my son I don't know now what are your thoughts on this whole uh copyright lawsuit that just got handed down because i feel like that one's it's kind of got the the board game community a bit divided yeah it, it was interesting i'm i uh i agree with the general premise that um that mechanics should not be copyrighted uh i, I think that um you know i think it's similar a little to the software argument and, and admittedly software is copyrightable but there's certainly people out there who will make the argument that code should not be copyrighted 
and I, I feel the, the problem, I think, with copywriting board game mechanics is that I think it would really put a squelch on the industry. Um, you know, for, would I be able to do championship formula? I mean, setting aside the fact that it is, it is blatantly derivative of another game. Would I have been? Would the guys who originally did Speed Circuit be able to do it because Shoots and Ladders was out there? I mean, that's a game where you move things on squares. To what point does that is that a copyrightable attribute for a game? I, I just think it, 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 it. There, there are things about game design and game mechanics that are. I, I just don't feel like copyrighting serves any great purpose. Yeah, you had an excellent point there of where where does it end? People can take it to a completely ridiculous sort of thing where it's like, oh, I've copyrighted putting pieces on a board. Therefore, all other boarded games, you know, are breaking the copyright. Yeah, I, and actually there's some weird examples that are out there. Like because you can't trademark things, for instance, um, um, Magic the Gathering trademarked the term tapping to mean turning your card sideways as a bookkeeping method. So all other card games that do the exact same thing, uh, which are Legion, call it something else. But, you know, that created this weird situation where I, I'm not sure what they feel like they accomplished there uh, other than people make fun of them because it's not like the mechanic really got copyrighted or trademarked. People do it all the time and it's just annoying now because we all have to come up with new terminologies for these things. Now, is there actually seeming to be a resurgence of board game developing? Because I, you know, I was the classic kid of, you know, playing Scrabble and Monopoly when I was younger and then stepping away and all of a sudden Settlers of Catan comes out and all of a sudden there's this massive resurgence of board games coming out. I, I think there has been and, and you know Settlers was the classic kind of really broke that um, into the U.S. And, and there's been certainly other games since then but I think that in general um, I, I think you know, if you look at um, publication numbers. More board games are being published every year than the year before by massive amounts. Um, sales in general for the, those kind of hobby games are going up. It's you know, you're at the point now where there are venture capital funds that have bought some medium to large size um, uh, board game companies, uh, publishing companies in Europe. So it's it's uh, you know, in the European market's a bit more developed and always has been for these kind of board games, but. But I, I really do think it's, I mean, you've got board games, good quality hobby board games, games that I would buy and play and have bought and played being sold in Target and Walmart and Toys R Us and bookstores. So I, I definitely think that there has been a resurgence in it. And and I think it's um, I think it's great because I, I I love these games. So, so you know, I'm biased to that. But, yeah. Yeah, it was a bit surprising when I saw Pandemic uh, available at Target. That one was like, oh, really? That's here. Huh. Yeah. No, it, and, and yeah, it, it is. It's fabulous. Um, so I, I, I think that's great. Now, is this your first Kickstarter as well or no? It is. It's my first Kickstarter. It's the first game that um, I've, you know, tried to get published. And um, so so it's been – it's been kind of exciting and nerve wracking for me. I mean, I, I know people who I've, you know, I've, I've been following the industry for a while. And so I've certainly heard people who've kickstarted who've been like, they spend the first 24 hours staring at the Kickstarter page, hoping the dollar values go up. And I, and I certainly caught myself doing that, but you know, here we are, we're near the, near the end. I think we've got a little bit more than a week left. And so I've, I've stopped watching the page every day, but I, I do still periodically, I do poke on it probably, probably once a day. And, and and see where it's going because because it is it's you 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 it's it's very much you're putting your work out there and you and you hope people like it and people like it enough to to fund it and and if they don't you know i guess we'll try again with something a little different but but it, it is kind of nerve-wracking well i uh i'm running out of questions jake you got anything i i wish i did but every time i thought of one you asked it andy no, that's good. I um, I probably should uh, should uh, wrap this up myself, anyways, because uh, uh, the wife and kid went off to the pool, and I'm expected at some point. Well, Doug, I'm glad we could uh, uh, have you out here for this. By out here, I mean out in the internet, I guess. Yeah, no, it was it was really great. I uh, anytime you guys want me on, I I'd be happy to do it again. Thank you. Good luck with the Kickstarter. Yes, good luck with that. Thanks. All right. Well, that was Doug. And his Kickstarter for Championship Formula Racing. As of today, the 11th, it has 11 more days to go. So stop by and check that out. 
So, should we move on to topics? Sure. Let's see. Where do we want to start? Okay, here's a good one. Amazon Echo and kids. People are saying that the Amazon Echo is conditioning their kids to be rude. How's it doing that? I found my kids pushing the virtual assistant further than they would push a human, says a tech analyst and father of five who lives in New Jersey. Alexa never says that's that was rude or I'm tired of you asking me the same question over and over again. Huh, that's interesting because I don't see why a piece of technology would need to ask have the stuff in it to say you've asked me that 17 times john please stop asking me john john why do you want to know like that would just be weird it's always possible that your kid's gonna run into somebody who just has a ton of patience and they're gonna do that to that person as well so I think blaming the Echo is fair. It's a parenting thing. <laughs> one of the things he was talking about was that one of his kids, I guess, kept on asking Alexa for a knock-knock joke over and over and over again. Did Alexa give him different jokes or the same joke? I think different jokes. It doesn't say in the article here, but I hopefully will give her different jokes. Because if you just had one knock-knock joke on there, that would be worst. If the kid's getting different jokes, why wouldn't you ask for different jokes? Because they're all knock-knock jokes? Sometimes that's fun. I don't know. <laughs> Would he prefer that his kid ask him for a knock-knock joke? I don't know any knock-knock jokes. I would actually, if a kid came up to me and said, hey, can you tell me a knock-knock joke? I would have gone with the orange and banana one. Yeah, we're out of practice, which is fine. There's the interrupting cow knock-knock joke. Yeah, that's it. I'm out. I'm okay with that. But the kid then, you know, I would just be like, well, ask Alexa. Alexa would know. Yeah. Kids are going to tell you the same joke multiple times anyway. At least the kid is learning new jokes. True. The, one of the persons also pointed out that the uh, to activate the Echo is uh, activate the Echo is Alexa and not Alexa, please. And there's no thank you in the requirement either. It's not Amazon's job to teach your kid manners. But it, all the manners and everything else should come from the internet. What are you talking about? I mean, that's how things grow. Then we are screwed. Oh, this is funny. Uh, one of the mother of two who lives in Ontario in Canada. I don't know why you put Ontario in Canada in your article, but okay. She is contemplating buying an Amazon Echo for her household after seeing her kids interact with their uncle's device over video chat. So they're Skyping with her uncle's Amazon Echo. Are they also talking to their uncle? Or is he just calling that up and walking away and putting the <laughs> Echo in front of it? Because that's bad uncling. <laughs> Or the best type of uncling. I'm so going to do that now. Shit. My kids were Skyping with your Uncle Jake. Oh, look, here's the Echo. I would probably just put a stuffed bear in front of the Echo and say, look, I have a talking bear. Ooh, sneaky. Yeah, why don't they do that? Put it like a, like a cover for your Echo to make it kid-friendly? Because it's not designed for kids, and who knows that might be coming, but it would also maybe hinder um, what it hears in its speech. You'd have to be aware of the speakers. If we get an echo, I'm not knitting it a cozy. <laughs> yeah, I probably would uh, have problems with the microphone if you put a cozy over it. So, Gawker filed for bankruptcy. Did Hulk Hogan take down Gawker? Is that what happened? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. The Hulk Hogan lawsuit did not go in Gawker's favor, and and they're required to pay 144 million, I think. Oh uh, yeah, 140.1 million judgment, and they uh, tried to appeal it, so they didn't have to pay right away. But the appeal got shot down, and so now they've decided to uh, claim bankruptcy about this. I bet no one at that company. I mean, maybe within the last year, but before that, in their history thought that they could be taken down by Hulk Hogan. Well, what's really funny is the fact that they actually are saying that they're getting taken down by Peter Thiel, who I've never heard of before this. How can Peter take them down? Because he was the one who was actually financing Hulk Hogan's lawyers. He also had a couple other lawsuits against Gawker in the process as well. They just don't want to lose to Hulk Hogan so badly. Oh, here we go. Yeah, a billionaire Silicon Valley entrepreneur was outed as being gay by Gawker. His friend suffered at the hands of the same gossip site and nearly a decade later he is secretly financing a lawsuit to try and put Gawker out of business. Yeah, Thiel was one of the co-founders for PayPal. So they published something. Wait, no, so Gawker mostly just publishes shit about people that they don't want published, right? Pretty much. Gawker is one of those online sites that's a lot of not above the board sort of articles. 
Like, like I wonder what's the wonder what the top article is right now on Gawker. They're going bankrupt. Yeah, it probably would be one of the top articles. How could they not foresee someone that they've published? I mean, they're not going after people making you know twenty k a year. They're going after big people. Like, how could they not foresee one of those people turning around and trying to crush them? Right now, the story that's on Gawker is no justice for Mr. Spaghetti, the fake Boston dog who won a real contest. Maybe it's for the best they won't be there. Well, uh, Ziff Davis actually is thinking about buying them. Did you just just say Ziff? Yes, Ziff Davis is one of the big... um, they own PC Magazine and a couple other online stuff as well. Okay, I thought that was someone's name. It's actually two names. Yes, but there isn't someone, well, I guess this isn't someone walking around with the first name of Ziff. No, no, it's the last name of Ziff. Would, would you want to be a Mrs. Ziff? Babe, I'm not a Mrs. Lowe. Okay, I'll turn that one around. If you had the last name Ziff, would you want to change it? I don't know. I was going to make the really bad dad joke of, man, Kate, that was low. Thank you for the example of why my last name is not low. Yeah, I've heard them all before. My name usually results in noodle references. Yeah, I'm not seeing that one. People can't say Brahmin. They say Brahmin. Like ramen. Okay, I get it now. So yes, Ziff is actually looking to buy Gawker for $100 million, and basically the money would be going towards paying Hulk Hogan. But since they're in bankruptcy court, um, it probably won't be all of the money. So Lenovo came out with a new uh, Moto phone, which is their flagship phone. The Moto Z does not have a headphone jack on it. Does it have another kind of audio jack? No, it just has a USB-C adapter. Are they expecting people to buy headphones with that kind of adapter? Should they exist? I guess so. It's going to come with a USB-C to headphone adapter in the box. But the phone by itself, you're not. You're going to have to have your little C to USB to headphone jack adapter in order to actually plug in headphones. That would be really annoying to carry around. Either that or it'd just be permanently attached to the end of your headphones. But then I couldn't, well, then I would have to keep track of it if I plugged into anything else. Because I'll go between plugging my headphones into my phone and into my iPod. I got nothing. Yeah, no, a lot of people are saying that the it, it's inevitable that we're going to move away from the analog 3.5 millimeter headphone jack that we've all known and loved. But love is a strong word. Well, it's the phrase. All you know, it's the one we all know and love. It's just the, the nomenclature. But they're actually thinking that the next iPhone is also going to be instead of a USB C, it's going to have a, a lightning adapter and only a lightning adapter on it. That's because Apple's an ass. No, I, I can't argue with that one at all. Let's see other cell phone news. Uh, some scientists at the University of Indiana, sorry, University of Illinois at Urbana. Um, have devised a way to turn the vibrating motor in your cell phone into a microphone. Okay, I have to know how that benefits anyone. Well, they were actually pointing out that it's possible if somebody had access to your phone to create a speaker out of the vibrator that's in your phone so they could listen to you. Granted, this whole thing right now is actually where somebody would have to tear your phone apart, rewire the uh, motor into the audio port, and then, you know, use some algorithms to actually take what the motor is hearing and turn it into actual speech. But it is possible. So it's a way for someone to hack your phone and not a user feature? Yes, that's what they're claiming that this is. Okay, good, because I was, I mean, phones need some sort of voice capture system to operate as a telephone. Do they really? Do they really need to (laughs) act as a telephone anymore? I guess that depends. Yeah, taking the time to do that just seems not worth it. Yeah, it's one of the things where it's like, oh, you spent how long working on this? Okay. Congratulations, University of Illinois. You just wasted a bunch of money to find out that it takes a lot more effort to do what you thought was happening all along. And it also said that the audio that they were able to record from this whole modding of the phone couldn't pick up high-pitched noises. So if you modified your voice to talk really high, you could be okay. Is that your plan? To just talk really high? Yes. Forever? Only on the phone. Note to self, do not call Jake on the phone. Or always call Jake on the phone so that he has to talk that way. See how long it lasts. You're right, I'd probably get bored with it pretty quick. I'm going to guess it was some student's project, and uh, when they released the data, they had to put the university's name on it. All right, so continue with phones. 
Uh, have either of you two downloaded an app onto your smartphone this month? Maybe. I don't recall if I had. Because there's a current um, report out now that says 65.5 of smartphone users in America have downloaded zero apps over the last uh, month. Actually, three months average, according to their data there. So, yeah, no, zero apps per month for the last three months. I think I probably have, but to be fair, I have a Google credit that's possibly expiring, and so I was looking for things to spend it on. Yeah, I'm looking through my Google Play Store right now to see if I've downloaded anything recently. For the most part, I only go looking for apps when I have a need for one that isn't being met by something already on my phone. Yeah, no, I haven't downloaded an app in a while. I think the last one I downloaded was the Dropbox app, and that was two months ago. Yeah, most people are thinking that we already have found all the apps that we need, so we're just not downloading anything new. I can't think of any other apps, you know, that I need. You have an obscene amount of apps on that phone. I have 108 on my phone. How many of them do you use? I'm going to guess eight. Hold on, I'm counting. I'm only at 26 apps that I use. I'm probably around two dozen. He's still counting. So how's the weather, Jake? Oh, it's really warm. How's the weather up there? We're going to be in the high 80s today, almost 90. Oh, that's nice and comfortable. How bad is it going to be there? I'm checking right now. Using an app? Using one of the few apps I use. 31 apps. Out of 108, I use 31 of them. To answer your question, Kate, it's going to be 91 and fair, but it's going to feel like 97. Back to you. Awesome. And after he said 31, he put his phone down and looked at me like, ha, I use a whole 30% of my apps. Now, to be fair, some of those are the streaming apps for work that I have to have on my phone in case somebody tells me that the stream's down and I have to verify that, you know, for work purposes. But beyond that, there's... It's actually 29%, less than that a little bit. If I counted all the apps that I... I should make a folder on my app thing there and just put all the apps that I need to keep in there for work in that one, and then I can do another count of how many I have versus how many I use. That sounds like a lot of work for very little end result. Yeah, yeah, it would be. It, It doesn't seem like it's that important to find out the exact percentage that you use, Andy. He just wants to make a new spreadsheet. But yeah, it seems all of the top 15 app publishers saw downloads drop an average of 20% in the U.S. over the previous year. I'd be curious to see if um, there was also a drop in phone purchases because I got a new phone earlier this year and I put all the app, I put probably 90% of the apps that I have on my phone on that phone within the first week. So if there was a big surge in phone purchases, um, would there then be a big surge in app purchases? Not necessarily because the app purchases would be tied to your account that you bought the apps with. For me being at, you know, iTunes, Once I get a new phone, the apps are automatically just placed back on my phone because of a backup. Unless you have a really old phone like I did that couldn't handle all the apps that I wanted, and so I couldn't get them before. Then yes, then there would be a spike in app acquiring. When I traded in my phone, they asked me what kind it was, and it took three different ways, three different attempts to get the backup onto my new phone. Wait, way to break the system? Yeah. So here's the question, though, is are you missing your physical keyboard? Yes. Well, that was an answer. I used to have a QWERTY keyboard on my phone, but now I don't. I do miss it. They, they make small Bluetooth ones that you can attach to your phone. Yeah, but then I have to carry it around. I'm a girl. My pockets are not even really big enough for my phone. I don't have room in my pockets to carry my phone and a Bluetooth keyboard. What about a purse? I have one of those, and it's enormous, but I'm not going to carry that around everywhere I go. I'd have, you know, to have shoulder surgery. A a small fanny pack? I'm ignoring you now. So one of the apps I do use is uh, Waze, and it seems people are trying to fight back against Waze because they don't like all the traffic in their neighborhood. Why is Waze causing more traffic in their neighborhood? Uh, Because they live next to a interstate i do believe that is under construction and so ways instead of you know following the actual posted detour for it ways was uh telling people you know it'd be quicker if you just cut through this neighborhood Boo-hoo. 
my road ran parallel. The road I grew up on ran parallel to a bigger road. And when that was under construction or during rush hour, people would cut down my road all the time. That is part of living on a road deal. One of the city councilmen in Atlanta says, it used to be that only the locals knew all the cut through roads, but Google Maps and Waze are letting everyone know. In some extreme cases, we have to address it to preserve the sanctity of a residential neighborhood. This is from those people. So we used to cut through a subdivision to get to the highway sometimes in our apartment. And uh, they would put up signs in their yard, very snotty signs about how, you know, drive like this was your neighborhood. And these are those people, same people. Yeah. Google Maps is ruining our subdivision's dynamic. Knowledge is bad. Well, to be fair, one of the examples they did bring up here was the fact that one of the roads had parking on both sides of the street. And so there were times where only one car could get between the two curbs. And so there was traffic congestion and, you know, backups caused by the fact that people were trying to go both ways down this road. Then someone in Waze should have reported the congestion and Waze would have theoretically rerouted people away from it, right? You think so, but some of the some of the uh, neighbors are actually trying that where they would go during rush hour and complain about traffic and other stuff in the neighborhood. But Waze could tell that they weren't moving, and so they would basically say that, you know, no, these are false um, reports, and so they just wipe them off the system. So walk down the block while you do it. So if you're stuck and it's stop and go and you happen to be in one of those stopping points and you're putting this into Waze, as I hope you are, and you're not using this while you're driving, it considers you to be a false report? Well, I'm thinking that means if you just literally, if you start up Waze and you haven't moved at all since you started it up and you put a report in, then I think it thinks it's fishy. Yeah, it's not possible to fool the system for long, according to Waze. For one thing, the system knows if you're not actually in motion. More important, it can constantly self-correct based on data from other drivers. So, you know, when you're driving down the road and Waze will be like, there is, is there a cop here still? Is there a car on the side of the road here still? If I say no, then the stuff just disappears. How often do you interact with this app while you're driving? <laughs> I normally have this app up and running instead of Google Maps whenever I'm driving up to Holland because Holland right now is under construction. It's ridiculous. So I don't know which is like the right way to get in. And Waze is a lot more responsive than Google Maps is with the information. I've never even heard of Waze until this conversation. Well, they're owned by Google now, so you just Google Maps has some of the Waze data already built into it. But I feel like Waze should, you know, if it's a one-lane street, basically, if you have, you know, people parking on both sides, I feel like that's they need better algorithms rather than people, you know, trying to game the system. Or they need people beyond the neighborhood saying, hey, this is congested, and then they'll fix it. But like, if for whatever reason people started getting diverted down our road because of construction. So, I mean, it would be a pain in the ass, but I'm not going to go and complain to Google because it takes me, you know, longer to get home. If I remember correctly, there was a city in England who tried to petition Google to remove their town from the map because semi-truck drivers kept on trying to cut through the town rather than longer routes around the highway. And it, the, the, the big semi-trucks were actually like destroying the city streets. I wonder what happened with that. I'm going to guess they didn't win. I'll have to do some digging. Uh, Norway wants to ban all gas-powered cars by 2025. No more what? gas for Norway? What about snowmobiles? Uh, well, I think these are all just, uh, yeah. It, uh, Norway has agreed on a new energy policy that will include a ban on new gasoline-powered car sales as soon as 2025. So you could couldn't buy a new car with that gas, but what are they going to do about the people? You know, my car is 16 years old. Well, I have a feeling that the gas stations are still going to be there for the older cars, but after, you know, it's going to be a gradual progression. You just say, okay, nobody can buy a new gasoline powered car. The gasoline infrastructure is still there. But, you know, after a while, that gasoline infrastructure is going to be pointless because there's going to be no gasoline-powered cars on the road. Elon Musk even lauded them for what they're doing. You mean the man who's the head of Tesla Motors is really excited that Norway is cutting out gasoline-powered cars and only allowing electric vehicles in five years after his gigafactory is built? What? He also thinks we're part of a computer simulation. Really? I don't remember that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a bit quirky. Oh, yeah. SpaceX actually announced that they're going to try and reuse one of their rockets this fall that came back to uh, Earth. That should be interesting. Uh, September, October. Is it the same one that exploded or a different one? 
Well, they've le- they successfully landed four of them so far this year because they had um, yeah they've four of them now have successfully returned to Earth and so they're going to try and reuse one of those uh, this fall. So that should be interesting to see and cut the price down a lot. Now, do you think Elon Musk was behind the dreaded Lexus glitch? No, I think that was just bad quality control on Lexus's part. Lexus? Lex? Yeah, Lexus? Yeah, Lexus's, right? Yeah, if you were to print it, though, it would just have the apostrophe at the end. It would be Lexus's if you're speaking it. But yeah, that would suck, though, if I got an over-the-air update and that completely took out my radio and navigation system in my car. I like would be pissed. It's like, oh, here's an update. You now drive a brick. Welcome back to the 1990s. Did radio in the 90s. Okay, bad, bad example. Well, welcome back to the, the 1830s. Yes, once again, I just shows how much the car manufacturers don't know about software. Well, what's interesting in the article talking about Lexus's monumental bricking says Tesla has been the most prominent automaker to regular, regularly use over-the-air software updates. I have to say, some of the Tesla's updates are kind of funny, especially when they throw the Easter eggs in there. Wasn't there the, the cars would uh, flash their lights to some music or something? I think so. Wow, there's actually a webpage devoted to Tesla Model S hidden features, tips, tricks, and tidbits. What? Tesla's on it again. So Microsoft uh, has been doing stuff with their HoloLens, but they've decided that they want to... Basically, create a HoloLens OS, and they're calling it Windows Holographic. I just don't even want to try these VR lenses at all. Well, that's why I was kind of interested with the HoloLens, because it's augmented reality, so you can still actually, you know, see out into the normal world. They just have the camera putting other stuff on there. But yeah, no, it looks like this Microsoft holographic thing uh, is kind of a mix of the HoloLens and VR headsets. Yep, still still not issues. Nope, I don't want to be a part of it. Do you mind if I delve into the reason why? Well, I look at it this way. After having my eyeballs lasered to see better in the way these VR lenses are super close to your eyes anyway, so you have a narrow depth of field, you're going to become nearsighted again if you've had any type of corrective surgery, in my opinion. You know, I never thought about that. Because while it may seem like you're perceiving things to have a large depth of field, your eyes are really only focusing something that's like maybe three to four inches away from your face. The things you don't think about with virtual reality. I know some people who played with them, and they say they end up getting severely motion sick after like 20 minutes, so... Yeah, no, I've heard of that as well. Especially with some of them, if they get a little bit of a lag when they're turning their heads. Ugh. Yeah, so I have really no interest in any VR headsets anywhere in the near future at all, ever. So anything else you want to hit before we go on to the random topics? Because we're running low on time. I've got a no coming over here. Jake, you? Uh, the one that I did find interesting, I just a quick brief touch on the whole uh, conflict mineral use in the gaming industry. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I loved it when uh, Apple was one of the other ones who was who's big on the conflict-free uh, source initiative. When they first tried it, they were like, half of their suppliers had no idea where their stuff was coming from. Yeah, and that's why I found the whole thing interesting. It's like, oh, the companies don't even know where they're buying the stuff from. Wee. Well, because they're probably buying it from like a gold supplier who's getting it from some other smelter who's getting it from some uh, random quarry or mine somewhere. And so it's like, okay, you actually got to work your way down the list. But now Apple says, what, all 242 are conflict-free? They've actually been, like, reporting on this consistently? Yeah, they finally have made sure that all the ones that they get their stuff from have been conflict-free, but Activision is not doing nearly as well. Now, Microsoft also is only at uh, 97%, which is up from 82 of last year, but still, it's like you're still working with people who are not actually telling you where their stuff is coming from. I just found the whole thing very interesting that a lot of the stuff that people don't think about when it comes into product development where the little bits of gold and everything make it into their vessel. Well, not only that, the other stuff is uh, a lot of the companies who do e-scrap recycling, a lot of times they'll just sell the e-scrap to a third party, and that third party most of the time will just ship it overseas. And the people overseas will literally just kind of like bash it with a hammer to try and break apart the stuff, and they just 
put them into open pit flames to try and melt and burn away all the plastic, which is not helpful for the environment at all. Yeah, that's pretty crappy. The dark side of electronics that nobody thinks about when they buy their iPhone or buy their Xbox or buy their whatever. Well, that's why I still have all my cell phones from forever. And a day ago. Except for the Nokia brick. I don't have that big thing. The Nokia that, you know, would never... You could probably stop a bullet with it? Yeah, the one that could never die and had Snake as its only game. Yep. I lost that one somewhere. Oh. Granted, I don't even think you'd be able to use it anymore because it would still be on the old analog cellular frequencies, which are now... Who knows who's got them now? Well, not that I'd want to use it, but eh, it, it would just be fun to have the novel, like, here are the phones that I've used in my day, Johnny. For some reason, my imaginary person today is just John. As another fun fact, the um, it looks like the uh, FCC Spectrum auction is actually still going on. Um, 12 days later. Spectrum auction? Is it because nobody's buying or because too many people are buying and they have to negotiate stuff? Oh, no, they haven't even gotten to the buying part of it yet. This is still the TV stations trying to figure out how much money they want to receive to move or shut down their TV stations. This is taking forever. Yeah, there are three rounds planned for Monday. 17 bid rounds and they still haven't gotten anything. And what sucks is nobody can actually talk about it because part of the requirements for this auction was that it was a non-disclosure sort of thing. So, should I hit the uh, random review and random topic? Sounds like a plan. Okay. I am reviewing T-Mobile Tuesdays, which unfortunately, if you're not a T-Mobile subscriber, you're out of luck. But T-Mobile subscribers have a new app that uh, basically allows you to get free stuff Every week, just for being a T-Mobile subscriber. Is it, like, actually quality good things, or just like, oh, you've been a subscriber of T-Mobile, here's $5 off at Burger King on your next Whopper purchase? This past Tuesday, we both got free medium pizzas from Domino's. And, let's see, there's free medium pizzas, free small Frosty at Wendy's, a free movie ticket to go see Warcraft, which, um, the only reason I would see that movie is if I was going for free. Uh, free movie rental through Voodoo, which I've never heard of before now. Voodoo is like a streaming app for, like, smart TVs. Ah, okay. So I could get a free movie rental from that, free Warcraft ticket, free small Frosty, free medium two-topping pizza. That was last week. Let's see. Tuesday this week is a $50. Oh, you could win a $50 lift credit. Free Vegas two-night stay for two. There's either uh, Mandalay Bay or another casino. Another free small Frosty, a $15 lift credit, another free medium two-topping pizza, and another free movie rental. So it's not bad. It's one of those things where, yes, the uh, as we found out the first day, because it started last week, um, uh, T-Mobile kind of had too many people wanting stuff, and the whole system crashed for most of the day. It was real pain to log in on Tuesday, but eventually we both got through and both got free pizza. So hey, hopefully there's the- nothing wrong with free pizza. No, free pizza is the best pizza. So yeah, so if you're a T-Mobile subscriber, I would say get the app and you can get free stuff just for being a T-Mobile subscriber. Also, if you sign up before the 21st, you also could get a free um, single T-Mobile stock. I already switched phone companies once this year. I don't plan on doing it again. Didn't like the coverage in your area? No, why pay two phone bills from two different providers? Yeah, Kate and I had that same exact thought at one point. And mine just happened to have really bad customer service. (laughs) So I left them. Good call, good call. Plus to add me on to Catherine's line was like negligible on the addition to the bill. So yeah, the T-Mobile Tuesdays app. T-Mobile subscriber, pick it up. So, random topic rolled ahead of time. Would you run a naked mile through Celine in front of all your high school classmates, relatives, and co-workers for a million dollars? Sure, why not? I don't know. So you're willing to run a naked mile through basically your hometown in front of all your high school classmates, relatives, and co-workers for a million dollars? It's a mile. It's only a few minutes. 
Yeah, that is true. It'd be about well, it'd be about ten for me according to my speed this morning. Yeah, it'd be a lot so, longer for me. So sprint as fast as I could for a mile. It wouldn't be that bad. No, I'm still not gonna do it. It's a million dollars. I know it's a million dollars, but a million dollars for being humiliated in front of a bunch of people for ten minutes. Mm. I look at it this way. I would be humiliated for about six and a half, seven minutes, and then I would probably not see any of those people again ever. Yeah, that's true. Relatives, okay. Don't know how distant relatives were going to go with me. High school classmates, I... Outside of the people who I already talked to, I don't think I've talked to really anybody. I could I could see your logic behind that. I'm personally not going to do it, but no, I can see your logic. So, for me, it's just like, eh, whatever, I was naked for a mile, boo-hoo. Let, let me dry my tears with these $100 bills. Pretty much. Now, would the millions be taxable? Ah, that's always the question. Because that would change everything. It's like if I took home a million and they paid like the extra money to make it so that the million that I got was extra taxes, that would be a different situation. So you'd do it for a million, you wouldn't do it for uh, half a million? Eh, half a million is still quite a bit. I'd probably still do it, but that's getting into the possibly not doing it territory. Ah, so there is a price. Everyone has one. No, I think we've hit that one enough. Anything else? Not really. All right, Jake, Kate, thank you for uh, entertaining me for the, the last hour and a half, two hours. I tried my best. And yes, uh, if anybody wants to uh, look at Doug's Kickstarter, it's the first link that we have for the episode. It's Championship Formula Racing. You probably could also Google it or look it up on Kickstarter. Uh, 11 days to go as of the recording, so by the time this airs, nine days and less. So check it out. Well, I uh, guess that's a wrap. This has been another episode of the Random Access Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, corrections, suggestions, remarks, reviews, rebukes, retorts, or just rants, feel free to contact us. You can find us on Twitter at RAPodcast, or send us an email at mail at RAPodcast.net. Thank you for listening. Thank you.